Walgreens takes its medicine, and you're listening to Motley Fool Money. Joining us now in high definition, it's Jim Gillies. Good to hear you and see you. It's good to be heard and seen. Walgreens Boot Alliance disappointed investors this morning with its third quarter results. Beat revenue expectations, but it slashed earnings guidance. The stock is down about 9-10% as of this morning. Uh, Jim, why was the market surprised that the pandemic tailwinds have worn off for this company? Honestly, I don't know. They've worn off for everyone else at this point. You think that this should have uh, as well been already embedded in there. But you say that they disappointed investors this morning. As I prepped for this show, I got my first ever attempt to look at this company uh, ever. I've never really looked at it. And I, my somewhat uh, spicy take is they've been disappointing investors for the last decade. I don't know why they're getting upset this morning. Yeah, it's been. I think it's been cut in half over the past five years. That includes uh, the pandemic bounce. Well, now yeah. CEO Rosalind Brewer is announcing a transformational cost management program. Jim, maybe that'll get your attention. The company is expecting eight hundred million dollars in savings over the next year, and taking a wide approach to healthcare delivery for growth and primary care, specialty pharmacy. Are you buying the turnaround story here? I don't think I am, and again, like I, I am, I am, uh, I am not well versed in this company. I've just spent about an hour and a half looking at some of the things here, and but uh, I, I basically approach this company as I would when I was looking at, if I would look at any other company if I was going to recommend it in, in one of the services where I contribute. And I, kind of my starting point here is uh, from from the Oracle of Omaha, from Warren Buffett, which is the you know the pithy turnarounds rarely turn. Doesn't mean they can't. But just that they are uphill battles, and 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 in, in Walgreens Boots Alliance, we have a we have a stock price that's lower than it was a decade ago. Forget the pandemic uh, rise and fall; it's lower than a decade ago. They've demonstrated that this is a company that can make a lot of cash when it wants to, and I'm talking about significantly pre-COVID. It was making uh, like uh, they in fiscal 18, uh, they have an August fiscal year, so the end of August is when uh, we're talking about here. Fiscal 18, they did about. Just shy of seven billion, about six point nine billion in free cash flow. Uh, in the teeth of COVID, compare that to uh, fiscal year twenty twenty one. They did about four point two billion. Fiscal twenty two, they did about two point two billion. This is going in the wrong direction, Ricky. The last twelve months, last four quarters, they've been negative. And there's been a lot of puts and takes, a lot of acquisitions, some divestitures. But you know, this is a company that's got about twelve billion dollars in debt. Uh, their dividend commitment, the the yield today is about six point seven, six point eight percent after uh, the ten percent drop in the market. Dividend commitments about one point six five billion a year. As I mentioned, they're actually cash. They've free cash flow negative over the past four quarters. And and this is a very this is a very um, squishy thing I look at. But it's something I look at. Um, I looked at the the earnings presentation that came along with uh, this morning, and uh, the best. Word I can use to describe that presentation is busy. Yeah, <laughs> they want to. They want to impress you with all the things that they've got going on. And and I remember back in the you know the dimly lit days, uh, you know when you're in school, uh, they would always encourage you to to make your PowerPoint presentations simple. You know, two or three or four bullet points. And your words flesh it out, and uh, that's not how this these presentations are structured. To me, it's exhausting. 
to look at this and it just seems like they they want to throw so much at you that maybe you'll be distracted by the fact that again this is a company where the stock price today is lower than it was a decade ago uh, you best like that dividend because it's probably you're, that's all you're going to get for a while uh, an 800 million dollar cost savings per year eh, you know that might come to fruition but you can't spend uh, you can't spend what you haven't yet delivered. Uh, as I mentioned, there's a lot of debt here. I don't imagine that's gotten cheaper over the past 15 months, given the uh, the interest rate uh, uh, scenario we've been living through. Uh, and valuation multiples are essentially also trading at 10-year lows. Some of that you would expect reflecting um, interest rates going up. And I think some of that's probable. You can put down to uh, signaling investor disquiet with what's going on here. So, um, you know, I, I I kind of I kind of look at the presentation. I kind of look at everything they've given us, and I say, you know, don't talk to me about strong quality of earnings, which is one of the things that they actually put in there. Um, this feels like what I like to call a Missouri stock. You got to show me. And for the last decade, they just don't look like they've shown anybody anything. So, I recognize I'm coming in kind of negative. I don't wish I, I wish I wasn't, but I, I had no incentive to look at this company after today, I don't think. All right. Well, I think we could leave it there, Jim. Uh, let's talk. <laughs> <I'm> sorry. <laughs> let's talk Canada a little bit. Uh, Brookfield Reinsurance, which is an arm or as, as you may describe it as a tentacle of Brookfield <laughs> Asset Management, made a cash and stock bid to buy American Equity Investment Life Holding for $4.3 billion. It is a cash and stock deal. Uh, why does Brookfield, this huge conglomerate, why do they want to pay a hefty premium for this company that sells indexed annuities and life insurance? Well, because it's a pretty great business. And uh, I will say so. So yeah, yeah. The, the Brookfield, I do definitely use tentacles as um, uh, my analogy. So with Brookfield, you've kind of got the mothership, which is Brookfield Corporation ticker BN, and then you've got a, a host of um, satellite or tentacles, if you will. One of which is is Brookfield Reinsurance, which is BNRE. And um, the structure they spun that out, I think, in late 2020. Uh, but they also, I think, they own two thirds of it or three quarters of it still. So uh, the way reason Brookfield does this is so you can choose to invest in which tentacle you want, or you can just invest in the mothership. Uh, uh, I own three or four of the Brookfield things at this point, and you know, just kind of smile along with them. But this is the reinsurance deal. So reinsurance is already acquired. Uh, they already own about 18 and a half percent of AEL. Uh, as of the most uh, recent proxy, they've they've been they've been kind of partners for a while. They've been, I think, fairly open that they'd be uh, or signaling that they'd be open to acquiring the rest of the company. Uh, so I'm not very surprised by this move. What I think here is interesting, though, is the so yeah, so AEL sells indexed annuities, right? And uh, uh, what an indexed annuity is is it pays out to the annuitant. Uh, a specific rate based on the performance of an underlying market index, for example. So, like S and P five hundred. But the the nice part about this is that they uh, they they don't track the full gain or loss. There's usually a participation rate. So, for example, if the participation rate was eighty percent, just to pick a number, uh, and the annuity is indeed indexed to the S and P five hundred, if the S and P five hundred goes up, say ten percent, the annuitant gets eight percent. Right, because eighty percent of the participation rate times ten is eight. There also might be, and I don't know the specifics of AEL's contracts here, but there might also be on some of these things. It might be what's called a rate cap, 
So let's say the rate cap is 7%. So even if even if the participation rate says you should get 8, well you you bump up against the 7% rate cap, so you know, you only get 7. And 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 why do this? Well, I mean, I think it's reasonably obvious is that the um, the the company selling these annuities can essentially uh, invest the float coming in from annuitants uh, into index funds. I mean, you don't even need a you know don't even need a, a a brilliant investment strategy. You can just buy index funds, earn the index return, capture and capture the spread between the index return and what you've rate capped and participation rated out to your annuitants. So, um, and and that's just a fairly simple example at ten percent. Ask yourself what happens if there's a 25% year in the S&P, like the S&P just goes crazy. So uh, it can be um, it can be very lucrative, and I think it meshes nicely with uh, Brookfield Reinsurance when they came public. Uh, they did a couple of things. They did actually reinsurance on annuities, so it's kind of they're they're now taking on both sides of the risk handle here. It looks like to me. Yeah. So. For the buyer, it can be in a very expensive hedging strategy. Some of them they'll even pay you an upfront bonus. For buying one of those annuities, Jim. Which uh, yeah, well, I don't know what color flag you want to put on that, but uh, I think it I think it deserves raising one. American Equity had some previous suitors, but for fifty five bucks a share, it seems like this one's going through. This morning, the stock was trading around fifty three dollars, so not not a whole lot of room for ARB games here. No, I, 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 I like I said because Brookfield Reinsurance is already. I think they're probably the largest shareholder, uh, not named Vanguard or BlackRock, which of course are going to be index. You know, they're just going to be index participants. Um, you know, and Brookfield probably can um, influence AEL's choice of suitor, shall we say? And I imagine they're going, "Hey, why not us?" And then for the broader landscape, does this signal anything about uh, mergers and acquisitions to you? I mean, this seems to be a case where finally companies with a lot of dry powder are getting ready to use it. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I think through the pandemic, uh, there was some. There was some dampening of a lot of mergers, especially uh, I follow a lot of like little franchising companies and what have you, or that might buy restaurant companies that might like to buy um, concepts. And there was a really big price disconnect during the pandemic. the The sellers wanted the price they would have gotten pre-pandemic, and the prospective buyers were like, "Well, yeah, but the world's shut down." So we don't want to pay you that. And so uh, a lot of the companies that I follow really kind of just sat on their hands and. You know, just husbanded cash or paid down debt, and so yeah. I mean, this is yet an, to me. This is yet another uh, example of as the world has reopened as it has. Um, you know, you start seeing companies going shopping, and again, I Brookfield makes a lot. Brookfield makes a, a lot of deals, and you know, I while I don't believe fully that there's no limit to their uh, dry powder, as you call it. Uh, They've probably got more dry powder than most, so uh, or or access to capital, I suppose, is the way we can better frame it. But yeah, this this is I like to see this kind of stuff because this is what Brookfield does through their various tentacles. So I'm 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 a fan of this one. High fidelity, Jim Gillies. Good to see you. Appreciate you joining <laughs> me today. Thank you. Investing doesn't have to be complex, but it usually takes a really long time to see any results. Matt Argersinger joins Robert Brokamp to talk about the power of owning dividend-paying stocks and the fundamentals of owning them. Quick note, Mattier references Bro's recent article a few times. It's called How Buffett's Secret Sauce Could Pay for Your Retirement, and it's available to members of the Motley Fool Service Rule Your Retirement. We'll include a link in the show notes. 
In the most recent Berkshire Hathaway annual letter, Warren Buffett devoted several paragraphs to what he called, quote unquote, the secret sauce. And a key ingredient in that sauce's recipe was dividends. So Buffett wrote that by 1994, Berkshire had invested $1.3 billion in Coca Cola and the same amount in American Express by 1995. And in those years, Berkshire received dividends worth $75 million from Coke and $41 million from American Express. Now, you fast forward to the end of 2022, and the dividends Berkshire received had grown to $704 million from Coke and $302 million from American Express. And while the growth of dividend payouts from those two companies was definitely remarkable, investors in the S&P 500 also did pretty well. So, here are the annualized growth rates of the dividends paid by Buffett's two stocks, as well as the dividends from the S&P 500, compared to inflation since 1994. So, Coke's dividend grew an annualized 8.3% a year, American Express's dividend 7.7%, the S&P 500's dividend 6%, and inflation 2.6%. So, Matt, this may not be surprising to you, since you're the advisor for a dividend-oriented service here at The Motley Fool, but give us your take on the you know, perhaps underappreciated role that dividends play in building long-term wealth. Yes, totally underappreciated, bro. And thanks for having me on the show. I, I loved your article because also underappreciated, but also maybe a misconception a little bit is Warren Buffett. You know, I think people think Warren Buffett doesn't like dividends because Berkshire Hathaway has never paid a dividend, at least as long as he's been CEO. And so there's this feeling out there that Al Buffett just doesn't like dividends. But boy, does he like to invest in dividends, <laughs> and not just companies that pay dividends. Uh, but as your article points out, uh, companies that grow their dividends over time, and Coca-Cola and American Express are awesome examples. And when that dividend growth exceeds the rate of inflation, especially, that's like the secret or you know the magic sauce to investing. And it's it's something I focus on in our dividend investor service. And dividends are truly magical. If you look at you know, data going back uh, to the early 70s. Um, there's various reports. S&P Global's got some data. Hartford Funds has done a, a report. Um, you'll learn that companies that not only pay dividends, but grow their dividends over many years are, are, are really the best performing stocks. I, I mean, if you look at dividend payers, for example, going back to the early 70s, um, they've returned about 9.6% per year. Uh, that's uh, a full 100 basis points better than the equal-weighted S&P 500. But if you look at dividend growers, um, especially uh, a couple examples you gave, those companies have grown their uh, by about ten point ten point seven percent annually on a total return basis, trouncing the the rest of the market. And by the way, more than double the return of companies that didn't pay a dividend over time. So I know Warren Buffett knows this. We know this, and it's no surprise that that's where he chooses to invest. It's probably where we should be investing as well. Yeah, it's surprising because I think over the last several years, for sure, people have been focusing more on growth stocks. Many of them don't pay dividends. Um, right. So it's probably surprising that over the long term, companies that are able to generate that type of cash and grow it at a rate that exceeds inflation are actually some of the best stocks to own. Absolutely. It's, it's, it's where I've really, I wouldn't say pivoted, but I've really refocused my own portfolio, really the core of my portfolio uh, around dividend companies, especially dividend growth companies. Okay, so it's nice to get paid by a company you own, uh, but then you have to decide what to do with it, right? And most investors default to automatic reinvestment, which just basically uses the cash to buy more shares of the dividend payer. And it's really an excellent way to build wealth because you gradually accumulate more shares, which pay you more dividends, which then can be used to buy even more shares, and so on. I call it the the dividend snowball. And let's illustrate it with some numbers from the DRIP calculator. DRIP standing for Dividend Reinvestment Plan. 
um, calculator found at dividendchannel.com. So let's say you invested $10,000 into the Spider S&P 500, the ticker SPY, SPY, as many people call it. So you put in that $10,000 at the beginning of 2000, and that would have bought you 68.8 shares. But if you reinvested the dividends, your share count would have grown to 103.2 as of the end of this May. In other words, you basically grew your share count by about 50%. But over this period, the quarterly dividend paid by each share of the ETF grew more than fourfold in value, but you have more shares paying that dividend. So the total amount of cash that you received grew sixfold. So all told, your investment grew from $10,000 to $42,787, in large part due to dividend reinvestment. So, that's the power of automatic dividend reinvestment. But you don't have to do that. Like You have choices. So, Matt, what's your take on how people should decide what to do with their dividends? Yes, it's, 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 great. it's a great topic. And um, I, love the, I love your dividend snowball idea. The example that always gets me, bro, is Altria Group. I'm sure you know this, but you know, formerly the Philip Morris Company. Um, and putting aside for a second how we feel about cigarettes or, or tobacco, but consider this. If you invested $100 in Altria's stock in 1972, so that's just over 50 years ago, that would have turned into $18,000 today. Wow. That's a remarkable turn. However, if you invested that same $100, but reinvested the dividends along the way, that same $100, I still can't believe this, would have turned into $2.8 million. What? That's yes, it is, it is. It's mind-blowing. Um, and it's kind of remarkable when you think about it, too. I mean, the rate of smoking... Has declined uh, almost every year since the mid '60s, when the Surgeon General kind of made the U.S. Surgeon General kind of made the famous, you know, uh, release about about the dangers of cigarette smoking. So Altria has not been a growth company; it's been far from it. But what it has been able to do is pay a dividend and grow its dividend over time, and get that you know that dividend snowball effect that you uh, talk about. Now imagine finding a company unlike Altria that actually operates a growing business in a growing industry. And you know, pays a dividend that grows over time. That's that would be a dividend snowball. But as to whether automatically reinvest your dividend, I think there's some really real strengths to just doing that, like doing a drip, because it's simple. It's it just happens without you knowing about it. It takes emotion out of it. It takes decision making out of the equation because you're not deciding how you need to invest that capital once you get it. I do that for a portion of my dividend stocks, mostly that I hold in retirement accounts, but. Personally, in my in my other in my taxable account, especially, I tend to do what Buffett does. I like to let the dividend cash accumulate, and then I kind of pick and choose where to invest. It it probably subjects me to more mistakes, but um, I kind of like being able to target where I think I'm going to get the most growth from each incremental dollar that I invest. So I, I kind of like to get the cash and then deploy it later on. I took an informal survey of the folks who are analysts here at the Motley Fool. Like, what do you do with your dividends? And a large portion of them did what you did. So sometimes automatic reinvest, sometimes. Um, be more deliberate with your dividends. But most of the people actually just automatically reinvest, which I thought was interesting. Um, as for me, I often do it based on where I see valuations. Right? If I think stocks are cheap, I reinvest. If I feel like I want to build up more cash, I just stop reinvesting on most of my stocks, not all of them. Right. I, 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 yeah, I think there's cash. merits to being kind of tactical about, about your investment. Yeah. Okay. So we've demonstrated that you can use dividend paying stocks to build up a nice chunk of change. For most people, that they're going to want to use that chunk of change to retire. Um, so you have these stocks that are paying dividends. Now you could turn off the reinvestment and use those dividends to pay your bills in retirement. But many retirees will say, well, like, I'm not comfortable with too much of my portfolio in stocks because they're so volatile. But to be more accurate, stock prices 
are volatile. Dividends actually can be remarkably reliable. So consider the dividend history of the S&P 500. So starting in 1958, which was the first full year for the index, there have been only nine calendar years when the dividends paid by the companies in the S&P 500 were lower in one year than they were in the previous year. In other words, they dropped. And the average decline across those nine years was just 5.3% in the dividend payouts. And that really figure is it, that figure skewed by two years when the drop was really significant. So in 1959, dividends dropped about 13%. In 2009, dividends dropped about 22%, by far the worst year for dividends um, since the 1950s. Most recent drop was just recently, right? 2021, due to the financial fallout from the pandemic. But even that event, you know, when the, the global economy partially shut down, it resulted in a decline in payouts of just 2.6%, and they were, they were bounded pretty quickly. Um, so, Matt, what do you say to people who may be uncomfortable relying on dividend-paying stocks in retirement? I, I'd say, and, and just exactly what you just went through, it just shows that dividends are much more reliable. So, you, you really don't have to worry if you're focused on the income that you're getting and rather than the stock price fluctuation. Um, and I, I just love the data you cited. I think a derivative of that is actually you can look at how dividends, dividend stocks tend to perform during bear markets. Uh, Charles Schwab did a great study looking at every major bear market since the 1970s, and in all but one of them, in the great financial crisis that that you mentioned, the, the really bad year for dividends, all but one of them, high yield stocks vastly outperformed. Um, and I think the only reason they didn't hold up in the 2007 2009 episode is is a lot of those high yielders were going into the crisis were banks. Or real estate companies, they were hit especially hard. But yeah, look at the bear market. But look at the bear market we had last year, 2022. The S and P 500 on a total return basis fell about 18. percent But if you example, if you look at the Schwab U.S. Equity ETF dividend, for example, uh, that's one of the larger, more popular dividend ETFs. It fell only three percent. So having a good portion of your portfolio, even the core part of your portfolio, um, in dividend stocks. Can really make a difference during bear markets and periods of volatility, and I don't think you have to worry about having a large uh, exposure there. You know, if we're entering a recession or bear market, because if you just focus on the income, like you said, it's that's going to be relatively consistent. That might fall a little bit, but it's not going to fall that much, and it'll probably rebound a lot faster than stocks tend to. Okay, so we're talking about all the great things about dividend investing, but like everything in the world of investing, there's always Good things that come with the bad. So, what are some of the drawbacks of dividend investing? Uh, yeah, there are, there are a few I can think of. I mean, one was the sort of reinvestment risk I cited above, right? Do you choose to reinvest or not reinvest? If you don't reinvest, you kind of have to make a decision. There's risk to that. If you do reinvest, maybe you're, you're investing dividends in a, in a bad company over time and you're not following it because you're just sort of automatically investing, and that maybe leads you astray. Um, there's also, you know, taxes that come into play. If you hold stocks, dividend stocks in a taxable account, you do have to pay taxes. Um, and sometimes, uh, popular dividend-paying stocks like real estate investment trusts (REITs) they don't qualify for the lower rate. So you're usually paying, you know, your marginal tax rate on those dividends. Um, I think the other, the other challenge when it comes to dividend-paying companies, um, and this is because of the nature, I think, of the sectors or the economy they come from, they're gonna tend to fall behind and underperform. When we have fast rising bull markets, so yeah, like you mentioned earlier, you know, just the the tech bull run that we had, the growth those those growth stocks, right? Well, dividend stocks did kind of underperform during that period of time. Um, you know, in fact, you can take this year as an example. We're about six months through 2023. The S and P is about is up about 15 percent. The Nasdaq 100 is up around 35 percent. Most dividend funds and indexes I follow are are pretty much flat. 
Um, I think that can be discouraging if you're an investor. And sometimes it can cause you to think uh, to kind of give up and, and think I need to start chasing the high flyers. I'm falling behind, uh, and I think that's where the mistake comes in. Because uh, you know, as we discussed, over time, dividend payers, dividend growers especially, can really work their magic for your portfolio, and you have to stay invested in them over time. Yeah, I'll, I'll highlight a few things relative to what you said. First of all, I think one thing is sector diversification. As you you know. The dividend payers are in a, in a handful of sectors, generally speaking. And you saw that in 2008. If you, all you did was focus on dividend payers, you got walloped. Yeah. Um, so you got to pay attention to that. The taxes are definitely an issue while you're working, which is why it's probably better to keep your dividend payers mostly in retirement accounts. When you retire, though, they're great to have because of that qualified dividend. It's not only inflation being income, it's tax advantaged income. That's so right. sort of a opposite side of that coin. And but the the one thing I think it's important to point out is that dividends aren't a free lunch, right? I mean it's basically a company selling a piece of itself just in the form of cash, right? If your company pays out a 100 million dollar dividend, um, it's basically worth less now and in in most cases the stock price will adjust accordingly. So it's not like it's magical money. It's really what the dividend represents, that it's a company that is consistently generating cash and very comfortable that can grow that cash at a rate that exceeds inflation. That's right. That's right. And so you have to be aware that you're right. The dividend is coming out of cash, it's coming out of the company's earnings. So you want to focus on companies where, you know, that have, you know, long-term competitive advantages, high profit margins, lots of you know, to generate lots of cash so that they can continue paying and growing that dividend over time. It does make you Need to do that extra analysis um, to make sure that the company that's paying you the dividend is going to continue paying it. Okay, so we've hopefully gotten the audience curious about dividend investing. How do you find good dividend-paying investments? Oh, that's a good question. How much time do we have? <laughs> but, um, it's it, it it can be hard, but I think one you know one area that uh, investors might be familiar with is if you look at some of uh, you know something like the dividend aristocrats or dividend achievers, uh, companies that. Have a, a track record of paying and growing their dividend um, for many years, and in some cases decades. And, you know, like there's the dividend kings, which have remarkably raised their dividend every year for over 50 years. It's still mind blowing to me. I think there are limitations to that, though. Um, one thing that I've come up with is a concept called the dividend knights, and it kind of uses a rule of ten. Um, it looks at companies that have paid a dividend for 10 years. Grown that dividend by a compound annual rate of at least ten percent over ten years, and maybe most importantly, beaten the market's total return over ten years. So these are like I call them like the creme de la creme of dividend growth companies, uh, fast-growing dividend companies that um, that just consistently have outperformed and beaten the market. Um, there's obviously a lot going right for these companies. Um, some examples include A.O. Smith, uh, Nike, Prologis. The Home Depot, which probably everyone is familiar with, um, these are some of the dividend nights out there. But I, it's 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 for us in our in our dividend investor service. It's been a great source of ideas as we're trying to kind of home in on the you know dividend growers, but companies that really can stand the test of time. And as we started the show off, just really consistently outperforming inflation with their dividends. Um, and if you can if you can find those and isolate just a few of those over your investing career. Just as we show with, gosh, with Altria is one example, but Coca-Cola, American Express. You know, I'm really trying to find those 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 dividend growers of the future right there. Mm-hmm. 
As always, people on the program may own stocks mentioned, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. I'm Ricky Mulvey. Thanks for listening. We'll be back tomorrow.